Возлюбленная Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к предверию нашей надежды. Да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которые очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови забета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, косность, невежество – все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег могущества Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего, пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым, позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, виде Его рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец и Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться.
незнакомых для нас тайн, которые Дух Святой желает открыть нам сегодня. Евангелие Матфея, глава 5, стихи 45-48. Да будете сынами Отца вашего Небесного. The sermon that I would like to continue is called, Called to Perfection. To fulfill this command, we have stopped to study the purpose of God's righteousness in the heart of a person. What purpose is the righteousness of God in our heart intended to fulfill? Specifically, we have been studying that the purpose of the righteousness of God in our heart accepted by us in the broken tablets of testimony in which we, with the law, died to the law so that we could live for the one who died and rose, and in this manner received the affirmation of our salvation in the new tablets that are intended to give God the basis to give us the promise not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, just as he had given it to Abraham and his seed. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of peace was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We must know that the righteousness of faith in our heart is defined by the obedience of our faith to the faith of God, or our obedience to the gospel words spoken by the messenger of God in the face of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. And therefore, the promise of the peace of God is given to only those people who obey the order of God according to which he sends us his word through the mouth of the messengers of God. Therefore, the covenant of peace in the heart of a person is the result of the obedience of his faith to the faith of God. 
To test a person to determine if God has truly sent him to represent the powers of his word should be done according to the order outlined in scripture and by the anointing in our heart that is present to aid us in knowing the voice of God in the mouth of a person who represents the fatherhood of God for us. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, so these Antichrists went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One and know all things. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. And so, according to the righteousness of faith, the covenant of peace presented in the inheritance of peace is called to abide and serve as evidence in the heart of a person that he is the child of God. Therefore, the inheritance of peace that abides in the covenant of peace are in fact the riches of our hope in God that contain all the promises of God that yield the purpose of righteousness of the, or the goals of righteousness. It is righteousness through the peace of God contained in the covenant of peace that can keep our hearts and thoughts in Jesus Christ. Philippines chapter 4 verses 6 through 7 Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God can only guard those thoughts in Christ Jesus that are renewed by the spirit of our mind, which is the mind of Christ in our spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, because they do not submit to the law of God and are incapable of doing so, and so, despite the desire of man, he cannot be found in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verses 6 through 8 For to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God According to these words, it follows that people who do not allow the truth of the gospel word and the power of the Holy Spirit to renew their thinking with the spirit of their mind have no relation to the peace of God whatsoever. And consequently, these people have no relation to the sons of peace who through the peace of God inherit eternal salvation in the kingdom of heaven. We must understand and firmly understand that only through the cooperation of our hearts with our renewed spirit and our thoughts that are found in Christ Jesus, we are called to reign the resurrection of Christ in our bodies and clothe our bodies into the resurrection of Christ. However, to better understand the purpose that righteousness pursues and the realization of the inheritance of the peace of God and the conditions that highlight how our righteousness must be clothed in this peace to meet the requirements of the perfection of our Heavenly Father, we arrived at the need to study four classic questions. First, with what characteristics does Scripture endow the peace of God? What power does the peace of God have in relation to man with God and man with man and man with the whole earth? Third, what conditions must we fulfill so that we are clothed in the peace of God that is called to keep our minds in God? And fourth, according to what things should we test ourselves to see if we are the sons of peace and the sons of God?
Because according to the reign of the peace of God in our heart, we must define in ourselves if we are the sons of God. As it is written, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. We have noted that if a person has not died to his nation, his household, and his corrupt desires, or his corrupt lusts, then the justification that he received or accepted in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus will never be transformed into the quality of righteousness in which he would be able to bring or offer the fruit of peace so that in his righteousness he can bring fruit of peace. Therefore, these kinds of people will lose the promise that gives them the right to be called the sons of God. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. This is referring to the crown of righteousness. Truth, this is referring to righteousness. Satan wants to steal his the man's righteousness. We must remember that the promise of peace gains its powers and legitimacy only through righteousness of faith in the covenant of peace, which places a responsibility on both sides of the law, and which each side of the law is responsible for fulfilling their role that is established by God in the covenant of peace. And if one of the sides violates the agreement made in the covenant of peace between God and man, and this violation can only occur for man's position, then the second position in the face of God is freed from the responsibility of fulfilling the agreement of the covenant of peace. Therefore, the property of the peace of God in the heart of a person testifies that this person is a peacemaker or the son of peace, which serves for God as a foundation to endow us with the virtue of the name of His Son, so that we could share with Him the fulfillment of all that is written of Him in the laws, the prophets, and psalms. Because the justification we received through the right of our birth from the seed of the word of truth transformed into a quality and format of righteousness in which we became able to bring the fruit of peace in our relationship with God and those who surround us. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. This means that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Therefore, we have noted that we are referring to a kind of peace that can be created only in the boundaries of holiness or expressed in holiness, the limits of which are yielded by the commandments of the righteousness of God. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, writes the same apostle in Romans 12.18, live peaceably with all men, if it is possible. This means that it is not always possible to have peace with certain people. Therefore, the peace that we demonstrate that is outside of the limits of holiness and is not an expression of holiness is lawlessness for which we must pay the price of eternal life because our fellowship with people who scripture refers to as evil company will corrupt good habits and it transforms us into their evil image these people have came out from us they have become antichrist do not be deceived evil company corrupts good habits Awake to righteousness and do not sin. 
For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 15.33-34 According to these places of scriptures, and many other places, it is impossible and a crime to have peace with the wicked who had accepted the truth at some point, but left their assembly and turned away from the holy commandments because the fact that they are resisting the words of the messengers of God established over them testifies of the loss of peace in their heart and it refers them to the category of the wicked. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah 57, 20-21 in previous services, we, in a certain format, as far as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, have already studied the first three questions. Therefore, let us continue to study the fourth question. Specifically, according to what science should we test ourselves to see if we are the sons of peace and the sons of God who are called to share the inheritance with Christ that is contained in the laws, prophets, and psalms? Furthermore, we have noted that the limits or the boundaries of holiness in which peacemakers, like their Heavenly Father, practice peace, are the limits of the commandments of the Lord in the format of the commanding teaching of Christ. It is in the format of His commandments that God shines with His Son and reigns with His reign on the just and the unjust. And for some, this Son is salvation, warmth, and help, and for others, it is death. Reigns are blessings for some, and for others, it is as a punishment. The weapon with which the sons of peace practice peace in the limits of the commandments of the Lord is the righteousness of their faith. We have already studied six signs in a certain format by which we must judge that we are the sons of peace and therefore the sons of God. We have stopped to study the seventh sign. By which we must judge of our partaking to the sons of peace. This is by the ability to clothe our essence into the holy or selective love of God. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. This is referring to the love of God, agape. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. We have noted that according to this passage, the rule of the peace of God in our hearts is possible only under one condition, if we are clothed in the selective love of God, and if the selective love of God abides in our hearts. We have noted that on its own the selective love of God is the incomprehensible to our mind goodness of God, or the virtue inherent in God, the virtue that is inherent solely in God. For the selective love of God, which is the goodness of God, contains good, wonderful, eternal, and incomprehensible to our mind goals of God that are called to build unique and peace relationships between God and His children. Providing a purpose for the selective love of God shown in Christ Jesus that surpasses all our understanding and is contained beyond the comprehensions of the abilities of our mind, Apostle Paul said that the achievement of gaining the love of God is called to fill us with all the fullness of the peace of God. 
or rather to make us perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. But to achieve the selective love of God, it is necessary to be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit in our inner man that by nature is akin to the nature of God that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith this here is referring to not repentance when a person receives Christ but when he has already grown into the full measure and accepts the seed or is fertile, fertilizes himself with the seed of the kingdom of heaven being rooted and grounded in love so that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God Ephesians chapter 3 verses 16 through 19 the letter of Apostle Paul if a person would have accepted Christ during his repentance and had immediately been filled with the fullness of God, then there would be no need then to grow, to do, to, to study, to examine ourselves, because we would be filled with, we would be filled with the love of God right away. Therefore, the phrase that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints is a condition to being clothed or acknowledging with our heart the selective love of God. This points. This phrase points to the necessity of finding narrow gates in the face of a good wife, the image of which is the bride of the Lamb in the face of all saints who are part of the category of God's chosen remnants. He who finds a wife, a wife is the church who meets the requirements of God's chosen remnants. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18.22 Therefore, to find a good thing and obtain favor from the Lord is to find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven in our field. We can be found in this kind of church but not discover the treasure of the kingdom of heaven because everything will depend on how we listen, how we hear the word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Matthew 13:44. From the meaning of this parable, it follows that if a person does not find the treasure of the kingdom of heaven hidden in a field, he will not be able to use the grace of God in the face of a virtuous wife to realize his salvation. The image of the field that contains the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is the image of our body that is contained under the rule of the law of sin and death, but at the door of our hope contains a promise that is called to free it from the law of sin and death. And when a person discovers this in his body, that for his body is given the promise that is called to free his body from the law of sin and death or from decay, then in order to gain this field, this body, to adopt and redeem it, he sells all that he has. Because only under the condition that on this field, in the virtue of our earthly body, which the promise of the kingdom of heaven belongs to, and is called to free our earthly body from the law of sin and death, and we sell all that we have in the face of our nation, the house of our Father, and our carnal life. And therefore, finding a good wife is making a marital contract or a marital union with a specific congregation of saints that meet the requirements of being God's chosen remnant.
According to scripture, the selective love of God as a true virtue that is, that is obtained by a good wife is goodness that is grown from knowledge of God by hearing the gospel word of the kingdom of heaven inside a person. However, to arrive at a more practical reality regarding the selective love of God, we will go deeper and deeper into the character and property of God's selective love in the light of the true virtue represented by the Holy Spirit in Scripture through the evangelized word of the apostles and prophets. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-8 through 8. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the meaning of the above-mentioned text, it follows that each individual virtue of the fruit of virtue contains the characteristics of all other virtues, because they flow from one another fulfill one another, strengthen one another, and are found in one another. Second, these virtues are the moral perfections and standards that are inherent to the essence of God. Third, these virtues are the great and precious promises given to us through Christ. For these virtues are the incorruptible treasures and riches which we must become enriched with that are contained in heaven and that are called to be revealed in this last in these last days through the faith of those who are saved. Fifth, we can enter into the inheritance of these virtues only by accepting the Holy Spirit, accepting the power of the Holy Spirit. Sixth, the means we are called to enact for the acceptance of the power of the Holy Spirit is the obedience of our faith to the faith of God. And seven, by inheriting these great and precious promises, we are made partakers of God's essence. For a true virtue expressed in the seven dignities and characteristics of the selective love of God has nothing in common with human love that is filled with ignorance, selfishness, and inconsistency. And so the selective love of God is a transcendent holy love that abides in accessible light and comes from the goodness of God, the dignity of which is defined by the great mystery of God hidden in the work of His redemption. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We began to study the selective love of God in the format of seven virtues we must demonstrate in our faith to reign the resurrection of Christ in our earthly bodies and clothe our earthly bodies into the resurrection of Christ in the face of our new man. 
And for this purpose, it was necessary for us to first distinguish the difference between the selective love of God from the tolerant love of man, because the dignities of the selective love of God do not go hand in hand with what man calls love. Because the dignities of the selective love of God are the characteristics of God Himself as well as all that comes from God, because God is love. And this love that is inherent to God's goodness is defined by Scripture as the bond of all perfection. The bond of perfection of the selective love of God in the seven virtues is unconditional. And apart from the tolerant and selfish love of man, the unconditional selective love of God differs in that it carries the all-consuming zeal of God, His omnipotence, and His absolute wisdom that is impossible to use for selfish and ignorant reasons. Whereas the tolerant love of man toward man can be easily used for selfish purposes. Here are how the pages of Scripture define the strength of the love of God. Songs of Solomon's 8, 6-7 Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Such an unconditional selective love of God can be both accepted and transmitted not otherwise than on the basis of absolute and judicious goodwill. The level of the love of God is defined by the level of the power of the hatred of God toward evil and those who practice evil. Because only by loving what God loves and hating what God hates do we express God's reaction to good and evil. From which it follows that the love of God is a love that is virtuous, knowledgeable, self-controlled, patient, godly, and contains brotherly kindness because of which we begin to study the love of God specifically in the context or format of these supernatural virtues that are called to bring us into the full measure of the stature of Christ or into the perfection that our Heavenly Father has. Studying the virtue of the love of God, we, became, we came to the conclusion that these are the eternal characteristics of God Himself as well as all that comes from God, because God is love. And this kind of love that flows through the godliness inherent in God is defined by Scripture as the bond of all perfection. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Furthermore, we define that the width, length, depth, and height of the love of God surpasses the comprehension of man about the nature of God's love, which is practically inaccessible to understand with the mind of man. that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. And so, from such a definition, it follows that being rooted and grounded in the love of God is made completely dependent on our decision to be strengthened with might through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. Because according to Scripture, the love of God is called to pour out in our hearts not in some kind of feeling, but in the person of the Holy Spirit who creates an atmosphere for the love of God. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has who was given to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Therefore, the love of God is the basis and atmosphere of the moral law that unveils the essence of God as well as the essence of the kingdom of heaven. Because all of the forms of human love bind a person and place certain requirements on him. You have to or you must because you are my friend or my relative. This kind of position in relationships practices the formats of human love such as filio, storges, and eros in search for corrupt desires. Whereas the love of God, agape, is a sovereign love that is unconditional only in relation to those people whom it chooses to understand it. Thanks to its sovereignty, the selective love of God never violates sovereign rights and relationships with those people whom it chooses, because of which the selective love of God is accepted and passed on on the basis of absolute sovereignty that expresses itself in cheerfulness. For God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. A cheerful giver unto God is one who cheerfully searches for God and comes to God in his conditions. This is what Christ has said about this category of people. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that ah, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. And therefore, only when the love of God is placed as head of all the other forms of human love, then manifestations such as self-interest and selfishness are bridled with its reigning authority. To better understand how we are called to demonstrate virtue in our faith that is expressed in love, it was necessary for us to bring to memory the origin and essence of the love, of selective love of God, the purpose of unearthly love in our faith, the price for obtaining the unearthly love of God, and the sign of demonstrating the selective love of God in our faith. By answering the first part of the first question, with what dignity is the scripture endow the source from which the love of God flows, we came to a conclusion that the selective love of God pours out from the virtue of the Heavenly Father expressed in His goodness. This could be clearly seen from the text we are studying, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue that flows from God. Second, the selective love of God is poured out from the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for his church. Christ had loved his church and he had given himself for it, washed her and cleansed her through the word so that she can be holy in him in love. You see, he has given himself only for his church. And if we have a partaking to the church, then this relates to us. And if we have no partaking, but we only spend our time 
waste our time. And as one brother had said to me, I'm not marching under their drums. I said, then why are you sitting here? Why are you sitting in the church under the drums that you are not marching to? Third, the selective love of God pours into our hearts in the anointing power of the Holy Spirit who produces an atmosphere of the selective love of God. Fourth, the selective love of God pours into our hearts through hearing the word of God sent to us by God. Fifth, the selective love of God pours into our hearts through our viewing of the world created by God. Sixth, the selective love of God is poured into our hearts through the church, or rather, through our fellowship with saints with one another. Seventh, the selective love of God is poured into our hearts the good soil of our heart. And in a certain format, we have already studied the manifestation of the selective love of God in virtues such as virtue, knowledge, self-control, and patience. Therefore, let us turn to studying the next virtue of love that is expressed in the mystery of its majestic godliness. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and agreements over words. From such withdraw yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-5 through 5. The doctrine which accords with godliness and the selective love of God and disputes and arguments are not just opposite, but they are also incompatible with their original natures. In Scripture, the discipline of godliness and the selective love of God is presented as the foundation of the evangelic faith teaching that is tied to the great mystery of God. Now we'll read this place of Scripture once again. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. In this manner, it is through the manifestation of the fruit of godliness that we can identify the true love of God agape in the heart of man. In Scripture, the meaning contained in the virtue of godliness highlights correct relations between saints and God who are bound together by a mutual union or covenant. Therefore, the essence of the selective love of God and godliness is defined and expressed and mutual obligations between God and man that are established by God in a mutual covenant of peace with God. On its own, the meaning of the word godliness taken from the biblical dictionary strong means or is presented in the commandments, in the sanctity of the law, in the law and the instructions, in the regulations and the commandments, in the council, in the statutes, in the teaching, in the rule of the law, in a court order, in execution of the court verdict, in justification and righteousness, in sincerity, in honesty, in loyalty, in long-suffering, in consolation, in mercy, in love, in a righteous deed, in a just deed, in holiness, in retribution, and in reward. In the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, the word godliness is seen 245 times. I had counted this in our translation, but in the original, there is going to be a lot more of it. In Psalms, this word is seen 213 times, 127 times in the Prophets. I didn't even begin to study further, but it's found fairly often in Proverbs, and it is also found in the letters of the authors of the New Testament. We know that the more places of Scripture are 
are devoted to a certain truth, the more meaning it has for the fulfillment of our salvation. Keeping this in mind, it will be necessary for us to answer four classic questions. First, what characteristics does Scripture give godliness in God and man? Second, what purpose is godliness intended to fulfill in relations between God and man and man with God? Third, what conditions are necessary to fulfill for our godliness to cooperate with the godliness of God? And fourth, by what signs should we define that our godliness truly cooperates with the godliness of God? And so, the first question, what characteristics does Scripture give godliness in God and man? It is worth distinguishing the godliness of God found in His favor with which a person must cooperate by demonstrating His godliness so that He demonstrates His love toward God. God's godliness is the goodness of God yielded in His wills, good, acceptable, and perfect, that were formed in the depths of the Heavenly Father and established by Him into a commandment. God's goodness and the commandments of God was established by God into a law for His chosen remnants, whom He foreknew and predestined, so that they be like the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, so that He is the firstborn, not the only one, but the firstborn. Whom had He predestined? Whom He also predestined? This means that this co comes from man, not God. A person himself places himself in this position. God foresees what, person, what a person will be when godliness comes to him, when goodness of God comes to him, and how he will answer to this goodness. And depending on how this person answers God's goodness, God has already predestined that this person be like the image of His Son. For example, the godliness of God in the format of His goodness toward His children finds itself in definitions such as in the selective love of God toward His children, in the good intentions of God for His children, in the legislation of God for His children, in the unchanging Word of God revealed in His will for His children, in the holiness of God, in the righteousness of God, and in the courts of God, in the mercy of God, in the faithfulness of God, and in the defense of God, in patience, in consolation, and in the mercy of God, in the reward of God, in the recompense of God, in the heart of the Father, in the seed of the Father, and in the womb or in pristine purity. So, this is how goodness expresses itself in these definitions toward the children of God. And in this manner, the selective love of God shown in the goodness of God toward His children is defined as the good of God, grace of God, the eternal love of God manifested in the Holy Spirit, the atmosphere and state of the hearts of the Heavenly Father, the good and lofty thoughts of the Heavenly Father's heart, the mercy, comfort, and patience of the Heavenly Father, the holiness and property of the Heavenly Father, the promises of the Heavenly Father given to His children, the inheritance of the Heavenly Father prepared for His children. And the godliness of man, expressed in love toward God, is first and foremost the atmosphere and state of the heart of man that meditates on the law of the Almighty, which expresses itself in the actions of characteristics such as 
a conscience cleansed from dead works with the content of truth, we are talking about how we are supposed to express our godliness. What is our godliness? We took a look at what God's godliness is and God's goodness towards us. And now, what is going to be our godliness in relation to our Lord? First, this is a conscience that is cleansed from dead works with the content of truth contained in it. Until we have died to our nation, the house of our Father, and our corrupt desires, we cannot cleanse our conscience from dead works. Furthermore, this is the confession of the faith of the heart finding itself in the actions of truth, or rather, what is the, the faith of our heart proclaimed is found in actions. If it is not found in actions, then our words are empty. We proclaim these words empty. We say we believe, but why do you not fulfill what you believe? Because the faith of the heart, if it proclaims it, then it also fulfills it. Trembling before the word of God in combination with a contrite spirit, reverence before God expressed in giving him tithes, a gentle heart expressing itself in humility before the will of God is the ability to love the truth and hate lawlessness, the ability to pardon those that repent and punish the lawless, the ability to look to orphans and widows in their afflictions, the ability to keep oneself undefiled from the world, the ability to consecrate God in your hearts and souls, the ability to thank God for redemption, the ability to express goodwill to God and His Word, the ability to expect the fulfillment of the promises given by God, the ability to look at invisible promises, the ability to call the non-existent as existing, the ability to rule over money, and the ability to be content with what we have. This is not the full list even. The godliness that we must express in our love to God. All of these definitions of godliness are an expression of a person's love toward God that is seen as a supernatural phenomenon that is incomprehensible by the ordinary mind of man. It is this multifaceted godliness that identifies the transcendence of God's love in the heart of a person, in his words, and in his actions. And therefore, for our godliness to work together with the goodness of God to demonstrate our love toward God and our faith is first to be godly for God, which means to be good to God, to be fit for God, to be natural in God, to be obedient in God, to be true and truthful in God, to be joyful in God, to be confident in God, to be approved in God, trust in God, hope in God, rely on God, to sanctify God, to take shelter in God, to seek refuge in God, and to expect the appearance of God. And this is also not the full list. It is because of these many meanings the Old and New Covenant determine the phenomenon of God's love and the discipline of godliness as one of the greatest mysteries of God Himself, which protects and makes the love of God impossible for forgery and falsification. We have read this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And from this definition, it follows that this bond, these components and actions of God, such as the appearance of God in the flesh, the ability of God to justify himself in the spirit, the ability of God to show himself to angels, 
The fame of God through preaching among nations, the acceptance of God by nations living in the world by faith, and the ascension of God in glory are also expressions of the selective love of God and the essence of the great mystery of godliness demonstrated by God. Despite these characteristics that are called to yield the essence of godliness, a forgery of godliness exists that will challenge the true manifestation of godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says, Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. I had ended up one time in one council of Episcopals of the Pentecostal Church, and a question was asked, Brothers, do you have the power of godliness? One of them said, what pride you must have to say that you have this. No, we do not have this, but we strive toward this. So strange people, they with their mouths witness and testify that they do not have the power of godliness, that they only strive toward it. But those who demonstrate an outward form of godliness, they that's what this is what they say. They have an outward form of godliness. True godliness in man perfectly distinguishes the forgery of godliness in men and with contempt breaks off relations with them and moves away from them as it reveres and trembles before every ordinance of God and his discipline that can exactly execute these decrees. If we do not break off relations with people who have only an outward appearance of godliness, they will corrupt our godliness consisting of our good morals. Because of this, we, together with them, will inherit the destruction prepared for them. In connection with this, we will turn to some sayings in Scripture in which we consider the definition and purpose of the virtues of godliness in which our godliness is called to cooperate with the goodness of God found in His favor. First, we will look at godliness and the selective love of God in the virtue of His goodness. This is one of the names of God as well as one of His natural properties that defines the essence of God as well as His will regarding people who hunger and thirst for salvation. Luke chapter 18, verse 19. So Jesus said to him, when one of them has said, Teacher, you are good. What should I do to be saved? He said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. Do you remember we had talked about the fact that the goodness of God is God's kindness, this God's goodness, and only God can call this goodness good. What God calls good will be good. This is the will of God that becomes for the Son and for the Holy Spirit a commandment. But when God ha speaks this goodness in His words, it becomes good for God as well. It becomes His authority, His legislation. Therefore, not what we call good, but what Scripture calls good is good. Because many things that we do, we consider them good. We think that evangelism is good. However, this could be good, but this can also be evil for which we will inherit perdition. For Christ had straightforwardly said, what benefit is it to man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul, but does not lose his soul? Take a look. People think good as the practice of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as the casting out of demons. However, when Christ says, when people will say, uh, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons, we did many miracles, and he will say to them, get away from me. I never knew you. 
all you workers of iniquity. Why? Because goodness is when God sends you and not when your flesh sends you, or when a person who does not have anointing a revelation in order to send you, sends you. I had met not just once with people whom, who were sent by others to evangelize. And one girl had said to me, when her pastor had sent her to evangelize, go preach, go spread the good news. She went she went to go preach, and a small of young people were interested. They invited her so that she can tell them in their home. And there they had, had a group raped her. She came to pastor and she told him of this, but she said, but he said, well, we must pay the price. This is the price that you have paid to spread the gospel. This was normal for him. And these are charismatics who are hooligans who believe this way. And during their night prayers, rape also occurs. One sister came to me and confessed that she was raped during night prayer in this charismatic church. And then speaking with another sister who I, whom I had known, she laid in the hospital. She had given birth. And two other girls had given birth there who were also raped and who had conceived during these night prayer services. And then I said to this pastor, I had known him, and I said to him, do you know that during your night prayers, do you know what occurs during your night prayers? And he said, well, let them be vigilant. Let these sisters be vigilant. Let them be vigilant. So you must understand right away that this is not good. People can call this good and so forth. That I ask, how do you understand what it means to submit to your husbands and all? I ask these charismatics, they're, they're, they're pastors, and you know what they say to me? They say, well, if the husband comes, even if he comes and he brings his friend and says, lay with my friend, you must lay with him, lie with him, and the Lord will reward you because you are faithful to the word of God and all, and you had been submissive to your husband and all. When it is written, directly that wives submit to your husbands as as you submit to the church and the husbands must submit to the church according to scripture therefore wives must submit to their husbands only under the in the limits of scripture if your husband speaks against scripture you are not called to submit to him you must submit to the truth not your husband has not redeemed you with his blood so that he could be your pastor and your apostle. The husband is never a pastor, never. The husband is a husband. I, for my wife, am not a pastor. I am her husband. In the church, for her, I am a pastor. She accepts me as a pastor. This is a second angle. It is difficult for her to separate it, but she can do it. But I, for her, am a husband. I remember when I had when I had conducted a wedding one and he was a pastor and she was uh, uh, the wife and she had asked me how am I going to sleep with my husband he's my pastor pastors aren't slept with husbands are slept with he's your husband let us continue godliness and the selective love of God and the virtue of his goodness comes directly from the face or countenance of God Psalms 37 Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain stand strong you hid your face and I was troubled 
You see here, the godliness of God and His selective love towards us and the virtue of His godliness comes from His face. If His face, is, His countenance is turned toward us, we will not be distressed. But when the light of His face leaves, and it leaves when we violate the, His commandments, He says, You have hid your face, and I was troubled. Psalms 44.3 For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. Psalms 44.3 You see here that any kind of victory in our life occurs from God's goodness expressed in His countenance or shown or revealed in His face. It is in the face of the Holy Spirit who represents the face of Christ and the face of the Heavenly Father. Psalms 4.7 or 4.6 There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Who will show us any good? Lord, his goodness. He says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. So the light of the face of the Lord shows us God's goodness. Furthermore, godliness and the selective love of God is presented in the covenant of God with man as knowledge that challenges the false and alleged godliness of man. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like the light that goes forth. For I desire mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men, they transgress the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Hosea 6, 4-7 Take a look here. How they had violated the the law in tithes and offerings. How did Adam violate? They, like Adam, he had stretched out his hand to the holiness and belonging of God. Do not draw near it. Do not even look upon it. Here is the tree of life. There are other trees. You can eat of any tree, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it. For the day that you eat of it, death shall be upon you. And here he says, What shall Ephraim or Judah do to you when your faithfulness is like a morning cloud and like the early dew it goes away? Why? Because they had stretched out their hands on the tithes. They began to say, Well, what benefit is it for us that we do this? You know, at the beginning of our services, many had said to us, How do you differ from us? Well, we do not offer tithes, and we are blessed, more blessed materially than you are. Take a look at how many among you are poor in debt and so forth, how troubled you are. Why are you bringing tithes, many had said to us. Give us all, give us all, give one dollar, five dollars. What, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to show? You are being robbed of. This is what they said of us. One had said to me, a pastor, of a Pentecostal church, he said, "If you were not have, if you would not preach about tithes, everybody would be in your church." Another one had said, "If you would not preach that wine is sin, everyone would be here." And a third one had said, "If you had charismatic worship, everybody would be in your church." 
I did not do this. I had denied this. I had denied dancing around on stage in the temple before God. God is not against dancing outside of the temple. He is not a, against it. But in the temple, there was godliness. Do you remember the people of God? Yes, they danced outside of the temple for what God had done for them. But when they entered in the temple, take a look at their respect and their honor. Each one of their step was supposed to be counted for. Their garments were supposed to be completely in order. Everything they wore, every sacrifice they brought, how it was brought, who was able to bring it. It contained great the great mystery and order of God. Everyone worshipped to hear the Lord. But here, how can you hear the Lord when you are so loud that you cannot hear the word of God? I saw people when I had just come to America. I also thought, wow, what power they have, what strength they have, them dancing and jumping. And then I see how the one who had jumped and danced, he had sat down, he's chewing a piece of gum, he lifted his legs on the chair and he began to sleep. Because he was all sweaty, he was jumping around during the worship. He jumped so much and they said, can you jump higher, jump jump, and, and shout louder? No, this is not praise. This is not worship. This is shame. Never, in, nowhere in Scripture do you see do you see this? There in Scripture, men, the people of God, lifted their hands without fear. Demonstrate your joy before the Lord outside of the temple, either at a wedding, gather together, and there's nothing wrong with singing and dancing. But when we are we're worshiping, we are in praising the Lord of God during service, we can't do these kind of things. That's why it's very important to look and see how we are communicating with God, just as and not be as Ephraim, who did not separate the tithes from his house. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Take a look here. First, men will be lovers of themselves, then they will be lovers of money. Look, person loves himself more than all, therefore he begins to love money, because in order to love themselves more than all, it is necessary to have money. And then they begin to fall in love with money, and they begin to use the promises of God that are given to gain faith. They, with these promises, they begin to try to proclaim that they are going to be successful materially. And if they are not successful materially, then this is this, the spirit of poverty. And they say, let's take the spirit of poverty and let's cast it out. They do not say the word tithes. They do not say this word. But they say, who will give 10,000? Who will give 1,000? Well, forgive me, but we have no right to say this. I went to one of these kind of churches when I came here. Uh, one had come here. We did not know that he was an adulterer. All the charismatics came to him, bowed down before him, worshipped him, and then they didn't wash their hands for a week straight after meeting him. And then I had come to see this service. And there they, they shouted, one who led this service, he said, Oh, little, 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 
give more, who can give the most. And then after service, he said, I have heard that you preached about tithes. And I said, yes, and so. Is this against scripture? He said, well, no, it's not against scripture, but you're walking along a thin line. You are in danger. You're in the danger zone that you're preaching about tithes. I said, but what I have heard, who will give 1,000? Oh, a few hands. Let us pray more and cast out the spirit of poverty. Is this walking along a tightrope or is this already beyond that? He said, well, this is a revelation. We are casting out the spirit of poverty in this manner. Where is it written that the spirit of poverty be cast out in this way? Nowhere. Because the children of God, the most rich in faith, they were oftentimes the most poor. They were poor and they were the rich, but the most rich in faith called themselves, I am poor and I am poor. Many were truly poor, but they called themselves rich. Apostle Paul had says, I have nothing, but I have all. You see how interesting it is. That's why it here it says that they're going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Those who are haughty are those uh, who lovers of pleasure are those who love sex more than the love of God. They said, oh, you were saying these words during service. One had told me, you can have sex, you can have children, but you can't say this word when it is written about in scripture everywhere. But there it is called different words, but people don't understand these different words. When you talk in those words that are used in Scripture, they don't know what you are referring to. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through five. In this manner, godliness and the selective love of God is a holy manifestation tied to the action of God in relation to those people with whom He made His covenant. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8-12. through 12. God had gained eternal redemption for man. He had obtained eternal redemption for man. In this manner, the Heavenly Father had demonstrated His selective love of God toward man and His goodness. He gives His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His sacrifice for His children, He obtains eternal redemption. Christ Jesus dies for His church. He, had give, he gives Himself himself for his church so that he can obtain for her eternal redemption god has loved people in the world his children whom he has predestined before the creation of the earth so that he gave his son jesus christ so that those who believe in him shall not perish we talk about this place of scripture often this is a famous place of scripture for all evangelists John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. And on this foundation, they say that the love of God is tolerant. He loves all. He loves sinners. But Scripture says, 
He does not hear the prayer of sinners. He loves His children, those children who repent, and He does not call them sinners. He calls them captives. They are His. They are righteous. But they are captives of sin. Because a sinner is someone who loves sin, and his conscience does not judge him for a sin. But the righteous is one who despises sin, but is a captive of sin. He can't get out of it, and his conscience continually condemns him for this sin. He understands that he is a sinner, therefore he goes to Christ, therefore he repents, and he says, I am a sinner. And therefore, God delivers him, redeems him. This is the goodness of God toward his children and his selective love of God. Godliness and the selective love of God is one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit without which a person will not be able to demonstrate the selective love of God in his faith. Isaiah 11.2 The Spirit of the Lord, or on Christ, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him when he is in the flesh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. In this passage, the spirit of godliness that rested upon Christ Jesus and the virtue of the Son of Man in Hebrew pointed to the state of the heart that was filled with the fear of the Lord in conjunction with reverence. This was the kind of spirit that is upon Christ. This spirit must also be upon us. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Laid me in the land of uprightness. Psalms 143.10 You see, without the Holy Spirit, who is called good, we cannot be led into the land of uprightness. We cannot be led into our body and make it freed from the law of sin and death. We cannot take away decay from it. Lead me in the land of uprightness. This is not referring to some kind of physical land. Land and scripture always refer to the body. The body is made from the land is made the body is made from the land. God had breathed life and a person became a living spirit. But the body of a person was made out of red soil. That's why he was called Adam, a red man. His meaning of Adam is red man. And the first man, and his skin was not white, was not yellow, was not black, but red, so that you know. And in this red man, and this first Adam, and his seed, God had placed all of the colors of the skin, and all of the colors of eyes, and all of the colors of hair. And from one man, he had created all races from one seed because the seed of the word of God had also made angels and all angels have different colored of hair eyes and different spiritual bodies this is God because many people before a certain time they considered even in America generals of God they had thought that the black people they cannot preach, they have no salvation, they are cursed people. And that's why these poor black people, when they had repented, when they had come, they had to be beyond the territory of the church. They came, they were found beyond the territory of the church, and from there they heard the word of God. They had no right to enter into the church of white people. 
This was what was preached. This was what was thought. But then God had fulfilled one black person. He had anointed him in such a way that he began to be called a general of God. He had such a high anointing. And when he began to speak, thousands had repented. This was a movement. This was a great movement that had made a revolution in the minds of white people. It had completely t- turned them over. It turns out God loves white. God loves black people. God loves black people. Moses had an Ethiopian wife. She was black. And when upon her, brother and, the brother and sister of Moses had one against her, God had punished Miriam with an illness because she went against this black woman. And he had said, How? Were you able to say this about my servant? I speak to her not as I speak to an ordinary person. I speak mouth to mouth. In saying this, God had said, all that this person does, he does according to my command. In doing so, he said, I commanded him so that he took took for him, take for himself, not a Jew, not a Hebrew, an Israel woman, but an Ethiopian. Because this was an image of the Gentile church. In Songs of Solomon, she says, I am dark. In here, she is also presented as dark-skinned. The Lord loves whites and blacks and reds and yellows. This is His essence. That's why the Spirit the spirit of your godliness lead me in the land of uprightness. This is what we were talking about during these end days, about the promise that relates to the door of our hope so that Christ could reign in our bodies by abolishing decay. When the law of sin and death is going to be destroyed, and Scripture says that it is already destroyed, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has freed from the law of sin and death. Apostle Paul had said this, and then he has said, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So, in his knowledge, in the heavens, in the dimension, God has already freed us from this law. The fact that we still today see this law acting in us, it still says, Consider yourselves. Proclaim that Christ has reigned in your bodies. Proclaim that the old man is abolished in you. Begin to think about this, speak about this, and proclaim. You will be told, but look, especially between man and wife, this occurs. It is also, it always, the danger is in that either she or he says to her, well, you holy one, have you again, Have you again acted this way, behaved this way? Do not say this, because we still have the law of sin and death in us, but God still considers that we do not have this, and He wants us to consider this. This is the essence of obedience. Look at the stars. This is going to be the amount of children you have. And stop saying that you are barren. Call Sarah, who had given birth to many kings, your mother, and call him the father of many nations. Call Abraham the person who has not yet given birth to anything, the wife who was barren, who was old, and her menstrual cycles had ended. 
they were both old. Abraham, he became weak. He could not yet pr he could not produce seed at that point. They could not have they could not have sexual relations at that time, when God had come to them. He said at that time, he was already old. Abraham was old. He had sat at his tent, and then he sees three people coming toward him. And it's written there that he lifted up his eyes and he saw. He lifted them and he saw. And right away the Lord understood this. He understood that it was the Lord. He got up right away. He hurriedly went, Please do not pass your servant. Come in. I will prepare for you. He says, He brought them the best kind of calf. He told Sarah to bring the best flower. He did not ask anything of them. He was quiet, silent before them. And then they said to him, Truly, Abraham is blessed, and truly he is going to have a son. The next year when we come to see you, you are going to have a son. This is how the promise of God is fulfilled. That's why let us continue to believe, to proclaim, to confess the reign of the law, spirit of life in our bodies. Amen. Let us bow our knees in prayer, and the may the Lord bless us in this prayer. All those who desire to challenge their fears, their doubts, their sorrows, their sins, their dependencies, remember that God loves you. And if you suffer from sin, that means that you are righteous. Righteous will fall seven times, but will get back up. God does not view you as sinners when you do not want to sin, but you become captives of sin. He calls sinners those whose conscience does not condemn them. Let us pray. The Holy Spirit is in this place to free you and to heal you. We wait for you. Amen. I will pray along with you with your prayers and I ask you to deeply believe that God is for you. He is not against you. That the sin that has held you captive, that you are freed from it in the name of Jesus Christ. He is mighty to free you from this. Your eyes closed. This is an element of a mystery room. Your hands raised to the heavens, a sign that you are ready to receive from God what He desires to give you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you with my heart, with my wounded heart, with my broken heart, with my distressed heart, broken from sin. I hate sin. I despise illnesses. I ask you and pray. Free me from shame. Free me from the dependence on sin. Forgive me. Wash my sin. Cleanse me with your blood. I unveil my heart and I invite you. I ask you, enter me and be the Lord and ruler of my life. And right now, before heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to your word, I am washed, I am cleansed, 
I am healed. I am restored. I am justified. I am saved. Amen. Amen. Your sins are forgiven in your transgressions in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He come down upon you with His holy face, have mercy upon you, and may He give you peace. May around you fall thousands and hundreds of thousands, but not draw near you. May all of these blessings come upon you and upon your descendants, and they be, may they be fulfilled upon you. And let the people say, Amen. Blessed is the Lord, that word that we have received. Let, it, let the Holy Spirit help us to keep it in our hearts, to meditate upon it, to look upon the invisible and to proclaim that who God is for us and what He has done for us. And now, let us proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and power now and forever. Amen.